Chapter Eight of the Flint Heart by Eden Philpotts. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eight: The Zagabog. After Charles had told the meeting all about what had happened, Unity spoke to him privately. I wonder, she asked, if I might come to the fairies' party. Charles explained that she had not been invited, but Unity seemed to think that didn't much matter. And as Charles loved Unity better than anything in the world, he consented to take her. I wonder, said Unity, if Ship might come to the party. He might come to see us safe home afterwards, answered Charles, but of course he couldn't actually come to the party. So it was left like that, and when the night arrived, Unity and Charles and Ship went off quietly without telling anybody about it but the members of the meeting. Of course, if John had found out, he would have stopped them, because John was grown up. So they didn't mention it to him, and they didn't mention it to their mother, and of course they didn't mention it to their father, as they were going entirely on his account to hear the wise Zagabog tell them concerning the gift that was to make Mr. Billy Jago nice and kind again. Ship went, too, and in the dimpsy light of a June evening they arrived at the Pixies Holt at 8.15 for 8.30, as the fairy had directed. De Quincey's secretary, who waited for them, was a small middle-aged fairy with rather a sad face. He had long been accustomed to do exactly what he was told, and he never argued about anything and you never knew what was really his own opinion of anybody. This concealment was bad for him and made him look sick. He worked the charm first on Charles, who found himself three inches and a half high, and then on Unity, who found herself two inches and a half high, and then on Ship, who found himself one inch and a half high, and was very much surprised at the change. And Unity said, I wonder if Ship might come to the party now. And Ship didn't wonder at all, but declared that he was coming. Of course, they quite understood what he said, because if you are once reduced to fairy size, you become able to understand all languages, as all real fairies do. So Charles asked the secretary, and he replied that it was not his business, and he would not say whether Ship might go to the party. But he explained that a good many important squirrels and several water voles and a hedgehog and certain nice birds were coming to the party, so he didn't suppose that one more creature would matter. Then he led the way, and Charles and Unity and Ship followed him. The bluebells at the entrance of the Pixies' Holt each had a glow-worm sitting on the top of it, so the visitors entered through a glimmering little avenue of lights, and inside they found a great crowd of fairies and other things, all chatting and waiting for dinner to be announced. The men fairies were in evening dress, which consisted of black and white bean-flowers, and the ladies were brilliant in every color of a rainbow or a beautiful summer garden. Their gowns were made entirely of flower-petals, 
such as the blossoms of wild geraniums, buttercups, columbines, violets, eglantines, honeysuckles, and other lovely things. De Quincey was running about in a very excited manner, and when he saw Charles, Unity, and Ship, he came forward. Charles explained why he had brought the others, and De Quincey did not conceal his astonishment. But it was clear that Unity made a great impression on him from the first, and indeed a little crowd collected round her the moment that she arrived. She looked very lovely and less ragged than usual, because she and Charles had both managed to put on their Sunday best before they started. But it was clear that even their best clothes did not much please De Quincey. This will never do, he said, quoting the words of one of the most mistaken men who ever lived. You shall come with me, Charles. Convention demands a bean-flower costume on the present occasion. And as for your sister, the ladies will see to her. Be quick, there is just time before the banquet is served. Some girl fairies took Unity and soon dressed her in blue speedwells, which made her look quite delicious while Charles was hurried off to De Quincey's private house in the high street of Fairyland, and the secretary found an old bean-flower suit that fitted him fairly well, though far too tight at the shoulders. As for Ship, he was not expected to dress, and the red ribbon round his neck made him far more dressy than any of the other beasts, who had merely combed their fur or feathers, and washed their paws or claws, as the case might be, and come as they were. Presently a gong sounded, and the guests streamed into the banqueting hall. It was lighted from the roof by something that looked like a baby sun, but the color was that peculiarly radiant shade you may have seen sometimes at breakfast, when there has been a pot of salmon and shrimp paste to eat with your bread and butter. A delicate and very beautiful beam of salmon and shrimp light spread through the apartment, and everybody's face shone with a pink glow that added much to the natural beauty of the fairies, and made the old ones look merely middle-aged, and the middle-aged appear quite young again. Covers were laid for three hundred and thirty-five persons, but the beasts sat at a table apart, though near enough to hear the songs and speeches. Their dishes were slightly different from those brought to the other diners. Ship sat between a lady stoat and a lady pheasant. They tried to look at life with each other's eyes, and taught each other many things worth knowing. Unity would sit beside Charles, and De Quincey sat on her right, and on Charles' left sat a very beautiful fairy called Lady Godiva, after the sweet heroine of that name. At the top of the table were the king and the queen, with the guest of the evening, the Zagabog, between them. The king and queen were elderly, but still handsome. The Zagabog was not merely elderly, but very nearly as ancient as the earth itself. He belonged to the grand old order of creatures that began soon after the earth flew off from the sun, and set up being a planet on her own account. His friends were the Thunder Spirit, the Spirit of the Rain, 
the spirit of burning mountains, and others equally important and powerful. But he was older than all the rest, and also more wonderful and more wise. He wore nothing but gold, and behaved in the kindliest manner to great and small. His table manners were homely, and he knew everything. Strictly speaking, he was not beautiful, except his pale green eyes. His back was round, his nose was large and long, his hands were really more like paws than hands, and his tail was ratty, but very neat and always well cared for. The Snick really looked more remarkable than the Zagabog, though he was only an agent in advance. He wore black, with an old-fashioned stock, and a bunch of seals and the hood of a Cambridge Master of Arts. He put on a great deal of side, and made a great deal of unnecessary difficulty always about the Zagabog and pretended that he was booked up for years and years in advance, and altogether behaved in such a way that you might have thought he was the great man and the humble Zagabog a mere nobody. Music played during the banquet, and there was much conversation. Everybody thought the Zagabog appeared in very good form, and this was true, because he always enjoyed his visits to the fairies, and was especially fond of their present king and queen. The Zagabog went round the world paying visits of this kind, and seeing where he could be useful, and make people happier and wiser. His life was a ceaseless round of visits. He lived in a golden island behind the sunset, but was seldom there for more than a few weeks in the winter and then only that he might take a rest-cure. And his busy life was spent among birds and beasts and the things under the sea. He regarded a visit to the fairies as more of a holiday than serious work, for they always did everything they could to give him a pleasant time. Of course he had to be made small when he came to see them, but his real size was huge, in fact, as big as the Thunder Spirit and the rest of those mighty people. The banquet consisted of the best fairy food, and I shall not tell you about it, because you will only grow discontented with what you have at home, and want to taste the magical dishes and drink the magical wine, which never gets into your head, but only into your heart. So we will go on to the time when nearly everybody had had enough, except a few of the beasts, who had had too much. Then the Snick, who was master of ceremonies, stood up in his place at the bottom of one of the tables, wiped his mouth in a rose-leaf napkin, and rapped loudly with the drumstick of a roasted grasshopper. Everybody cheered him, and the Snick, who liked fame, even the fame that belongs to an agent in advance, bowed to the right and bowed to the left, and bowed to the high table where royalty sat. Then he said, Your Majesties, Mr. Zagabog, ladies and gentlemen and beasts, our entertainment this evening is various and picturesque, gorgeous and refined, harmonious and artistic. The first item will be an ode composed and written by the fairy poet De Quincey. It is entitled 
Mr. Zagabog, and it will give you a brief sketch of the life history, achievements, and precious peculiarities of your honored guest." There was a great stir. The Zagabog smiled out of his gentle green eyes and took wine with De Quincey. Then the soloist stood up, and the chorus stood up, and the band tuned up, because De Quincey was not only a poet but a musician, and he had written the music of the ode and arranged all the parts and everything. It was, in fact, a cantata, so he said. In order to conduct, he got on to the table. His baton was a furze needle, and he tapped one of the wine goblets, the seed case of a campion, that he might command attention and silence the conversation. Then the opening bars of the ode were given. It began rather solemnly, but worked up into a spirited air before the solo. The first soloist was one of the greatest singers that Fairyland has ever known. She called herself Madame Melba, and her voice was like the little twitter of the swallows when they are catching flies for their young ones. The gentleman soloist was known as Sir Charles Santley, and his high notes sounded like a bee in a cowslip, only with more feeling. They sang alternate verses, while the chorus struck in at the end of each verse. I cannot give you the music of this great performance because it is copyrighted, but the words I have in my possession. They are, however, far too important words for the end of a chapter, and I shall begin the next one with them. End of chapter 8